Good morning, everyone. A reading from the first book of Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that, that, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. Good morning, everybody. Um, Want to invite our children to Children's Church. Um, Kathy will meet you at the back there. It's just a setting for kids to learn about the Bible in, in a more age-appropriate way. Um, so um, first of all, I wanted to welcome, there's more than usual people on Zoom this morning. So hello, Zoom people. Um, this is because COVID and uh, Omicron is surging, and so we have more people out than, than typical. So. Uh, we want to be praying for them, but also for other things. So let's, let's start with a word of prayer. Lord, um, you are sovereign over all things. There is not an atom, there's not a quark, there's not a meson in the entire universe that is not under your control, is not where you desire it to be at any given moment, in any quantum state that it should be. And so, Lord, this disease that's uh, spreading across the world is not beyond your control. Um, you are ordaining this to accomplish a purpose. And, uh, Lord, we're going to talk about your purpose in this, this kind of thing in the, in the sermon. But, Lord, I just pray for all of our friends and, and people we know who have COVID, uh, that you would get them through it quickly and smoothly, that this version of it would be the most mild and uh, would begin to fade into the background. And, Lord, to that end, we pray for um, Katie Crawford's friend, Hunter, uh, who was diagnosed with lung cancer and now has COVID on top of that. Lord, that's, that's two strikes against his lungs. And so would you, by your mercy, be with him as he deals with the COVID. Lord, would you, by your grace, not make him suffer. Um, help him through this and uh, give him the faith to trust you while he's dealing with these two illnesses battling for him. And Father, I want to pray also for all the folks from Trinity 
who are out because of uh, COVID or recovering from COVID or lingering effects from COVID. Lord, would you show them your grace and your mercy? Be kind to them. And Lord, we also think of uh, other people suffering. The island nation of Tonga last weekend hit with a massive volcano. The, um, the earthquake sh shook the island. The sonic boom, um, which rang around the world twice, uh, was deafening for them. The tsunami that came afterwards and now a cloud of volcanic ash. And Lord, we just pray for this tiny nation that's now isolated because undersea cables have broken. Uh, Lord, we pray for uh, the survival of, of those who are there, that the international community would respond well, and that uh, you would show your glory through these people. Um, show us what it is that, uh, that, accomplish, that you're accomplishing there. And uh, through all of this, we pray that the name of Christ would be exalted. And uh, Lord, we also want to pray for our own nation. As today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, uh, the 49th anniversary of... Um, the Roe versus Wade decision is uh, uh, around this time. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us as a people for our sin, that you would um, break the hold of this horrific lie that um, an abortion will make everything better, that taking an innocent life is, is the answer. And Lord, that um, you would be with our Supreme Court now as they decide Dodds versus uh, Jackson and uh, they wrestle through this. Lord, I pray that their answer would be the correct answer, that um, our Constitution does not guarantee a right to abortion, but it guarantees a right to life. And uh, our, our Declaration of Independence declares that we have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so. Lord, we pray that you would end the, uh, the scourge of abortion as it is and uh, be with those who work in that field. Um, Lord, there's much more to life than just ending abortion, so would you be with the crisis pregnancy centers that are around the world, around the nation, and uh, the Christians and the, the other people who are working there. Uh, may we see an end to this, this horrible thing. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, um, these... Uh, section of first peter there's just so much there holy spirit we need your power to understand would you open our eyes and hearts open my mouth to speak your words clearly and lord would you show us what it is that you have for us this morning from your word we ask all of this in christ's name amen there is an adventurer who you probably don't know of but he was a 19th century adventurer british guy did some amazing things. His name was Sir Richard, or Captain Sir Richard Francis Burton. And uh, he did a number of incredible things. The man could hear a language and digest it instantly. He could speak different dialects of different languages without an accent. And he was from the, his, his, one of his grandfathers, I think, was from the Roma people, the people we call gypsies. Though he was British, so he had a bit darker of a complexion and darker hair. And so what he was, one of the wonderful things he was able to do was disguise himself as an Arab, or as a, um, he was, disguised himself as an Indian-born Afghan named Abdullah, and he traveled to Mecca. The first European to travel to Mecca and to survive to tell it. That's a sacred city. You're not allowed to trespass there. He did this because he could speak the language, the Pashtun language, without an accent. Just amazing. Uh, the other thing that he did that you might know of is he is the one who translated uh, the Arabian Nights 
into English. He was the first person to do that. Well, one of the most spectacular things that he did was in the fall of 1856, at the age of 35, he and a man named John Henning Speck set off for a two-year safari, a word he introduced to the English language, by the way, um, and they went for an exploration of the utterly unknown lake regions of Central Africa. So I'm reading his biography right now, so I'm going to quote a little bit from it to kind of give you an idea of this journey. Um, the, the idea was he went to the, um, the Royal Geographic Society and he got them to fund his trip because what he wanted to do was correct certain geographical errors, of which there were many, concerning the Dark Continent, and to survey as fully as possible the resources of Central and Intratropical Africa. And so they gave him money. And he set sail for Africa. He and, Henny, uh, he and, um, and uh, Speck set sail for Africa. When they got there, they thought they would just arrive and buy the supplies they need, hire the, the porters that they would need to carry the things, buy the animals to carry everything. Uh, while they gathered that stuff, uh, what they found out was they were very shorthanded in all of that. There was not the supplies available that they thought. They didn't have enough going into this safari to actually survive. But they figured they'd head off and they would gather things as they went. Uh, so they gathered their supplies, their pack animals, their porters, and they headed off to the African interior. Uh, almost immediately, the porters started mutinying and trying to kill Burton. Um, there's a, a story that he understood their language and they didn't know it. So he's standing there and he's got his dagger in his hand like this and behind him, standing right behind him, are two of his porters discussing how they were about to kill him. And so as he's standing there and he hears them coming, he stabbed one of them and killed him and he spared the other one. Uh, so this was their porters. This was the people who were supposed to be leading them through the jungle. Um, almost immediately after that, he and Speck both got malaria. Um, with malaria, they traveled 118 miles in 18 days with malaria. So here's how the, the biography explains this, this trek through the jungle. Struggling under appalling conditions, two sick men, handicapped by insufficient resources, a shortage of porters and animal transport, a lack of equipment, a rebellious caravan pushed ahead into Africa, or pushed ahead into an Africa no European had ever seen, and which even the long-experienced Arab slavers and traders approached with caution and fear. Because of the continuing loss of animals and desertion of porters, the trip was turning into a nightmare. They were struggling through this. Nevertheless, the team pressed on and they got all the way to Lake Tangalika. Everybody knows where that's at. I don't have to explain that. Burton is said to be the first European to lay his eyes on the lake because Speck was blind. He was temporarily blinded by his illness. So Burton got to see it first. Well. Speck, while they were there, began to recover. Burton got sick. So Burton planned the rest of the exploration, the expedition, some places to go, some things to see, and he stayed at the lake while Speck pressed on. And as Speck continued the, the plan that they had laid out, this is what they found. Well, not Hollywood. Go ahead. <laughs> they discovered... Lake Victoria, the source of the Nile. That's what they discovered. That's what all that suffering, all of that opposition, all of the threats of violence, all the danger that they faced was that. 
so that they could discover that and name it Lake Victoria and, dis and verify that's where the Nile comes from. So go ahead and you put the other one back up. So here's the point of the story. Sometimes the journey can be awful, but the destination might be worth it. It might be worth arriving there. There might be something that'll happen. And that's what we're going to see this morning in, in this section of 1 Peter. Now, what we had um, Ebony read is a bit too long to preach, but it's the context. And what that's about is that is about being born again to a living hope. That's what this whole big section is. And that's what we talked about last week was this living hope that we have and where it comes from. So this week, what we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 6 through 9, and this is talking about our precious faith. Um, the way we ended last week was on uh, verse 5, which said, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. It turns out that, that sentence explains what these next two sections are about. So this paragraph, the rest of this paragraph, verses 6 through 9, is about faith, our precious faith, how precious that is. And then verses 10 through 12, wow, those are long verses. I'm looking at my Bible, and it's like, that, that's taken up a lot of lines. 10 through 12 is about this faith ready to be revealed, and what it, what it about that is. So the idea that, that Peter's trying to give us here is he's trying to root us in hope by showing us that the hope is living, that we achieve it by faith, and that it has been God's plan all along. So let's go ahead and take a look at this. So verse 6, he starts with, in this you rejoice. What he's talking about here, the this that he's referring to, is what we talked about last week, this salvation that we have through faith that's ready to be revealed. It was all of the things that we heard last week. In this you rejoice. In this salvation that we have been given, we find joy. Now, you remember when we went through Philippians, we talked about joy. And I tried to give it some definitions. So I read a couple of them. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great um, English preacher in the 1950s in London, he said, joy, in other words, is the response and the reaction of the soul to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's pretty good. That's not a bad definition. C.S. Lewis said that joy is an undesired or unsatisfied desire, which itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction. Try that again. An unsatisfied desire, which itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction. So even though you haven't had your satisfaction met, it's better than any satisfaction that you have had met. So um, another way he put it is, joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with what we call happiness or pleasure, the fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. Everybody got it? <laughs> the problem here is that joy is easier to describe. It's easier to experience than it is to define. So if it's, if it's not clear, that's okay. Here's my attempt at it. It is a sense of satisfaction, of contentedness, that is not tied to our current circumstances, but is rooted in the sure knowledge of God's love and goodness in Jesus Christ. So it, it's that, it's, it, part of our joy is our faith. It's, it's trusting in Jesus Christ. It's looking forward to who he is and what he's done for us. So that's why Peter begins with this statement, 
in this you rejoice. The, the sure knowledge that we have that we have been saved by Jesus Christ, that we are being preserved by the power of God, that gives us joy. Now he starts with that because what he's about to say next is kind of difficult. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. The Bible is, if nothing else, profoundly realistic about humanity. It doesn't clean things up. It doesn't present paper book heroes. It doesn't make everything squeaky and clean and nice. If someone was to make a television series based on the book of Judges or David's life, I would say it would probably rival the Game of Thrones. It, the Bible just doesn't shy away from those kind of things. And so when Peter is talking about this salvation that we have and this joy that we have, the first place he goes is trials. Life is not going to be easy. It just isn't. Life is going to be hard. Jesus himself said, if they persecuted me, which they did, they will persecute you. If you keep my word, or if they kept my word, they will also keep yours, which they didn't. So we can expect, our Lord is telling us right off the bat, you can expect trials. He also went on in John 16, he says, If I have said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. He's overcome the world, and yet, in this world, you will have tribulation. It's going to be difficult. And then, then Paul is really clear. He says, in, in, indeed, in, in, I'm sorry, in Paul in, in uh, 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So in this rejoice, you rejoice, even though for a while you'll be grieved. This is the, the, the bare reality of what the Christian life is like. So Last week, we talked about the island nation of Tonga. We gave an example from that. We just prayed for them. Um, that tsunami that hit them was a 49-foot wave over this island. And it's now under this volcanic cloud. And yet, like I said last week, Tonga is, according to Operation World, 95% Christian. So the world could look at that and go, well, why does he let bad things to happen to you guys? You're his people. The reality is God doesn't spare us from those things. He, he's doing something with it. He's doing something through it. He doesn't remove us from troubles. He, preser he, perseveres, or he, he preserves us through them. So the history of the Christian church, if you look through the broader history of the Christian church, is filled with martyrs. The first one we hear about is Stephen. He was stoned to death in the book of Acts. For a little while, you may suffer various trials. Why, Lord, why? We turn to you, we trust you, we put our hope in you. Why must we face these trials? And don't be glib about this and just kind of answer too quickly. It, it's easy for us. In the West, we don't suffer very much, very often. And so we can kind of be glib about this answer, but the question really hangs, why does God allow suffering? Why would he do this to our brothers and sisters in Christ? So here's the thing. Atheist's answer is there's no purpose to the universe. Nothing exploded, turned into everything. Some of the other, everything settled into a planet, and on that planet happened to grow spontaneous something called life. 
for no purpose, no reason, has no goal, no end. So what about suffering? You just drew the short straw, sorry. I have no answer for why you suffer, just you do. It stinks. And I don't mean to, be, to, to make it sound like atheists are, are you know, callous, uncaring people. They work to alleviate suffering. They, they are engaged in the sciences and medical care and that kind of thing, trying to alleviate the suffering. But when it comes down to it, why am I suffering? They have no answer. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. Therefore, suffering has no purpose, according to them. But look at what Peter says. He says, for a little while, if necessary. It, there's a necessity to suffering in a Christian worldview. One definition of necessity or necessary is needed to achieve a certain desired effect or result required. What I'm saying is, when suffering comes, that little phrase, if necessary, means God is allowing it. God is bringing it about. Look at uh, 3.17. Peter says, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. If we suffer, it is not outside of God's will. He, he allows that. So why do we suffer? Why would he allow that? He, he has a purpose. He has a reason for doing it. And that's why Peter tells us, for a little while, if necessary, you may suffer. A little while, that can be kind of hard to take. If you're in the middle of suffering, if you're, if you're really suffering for somebody to come up and say, for a little while. Well, what if you have a child born with severe handicaps who's prone to song, strong seizures and they live their life that way and you suffer because your child is suffering? Would it be caring to come up to them? Well, it's only for a little while. This poor child has been suffering their entire life. We're suffering along with them. How can you say for a little while? How can our suffering be for a little while? Well, I think Peter has something in mind much larger than just our life. He's been talking about a salvation. He's been talking about in Christ. He's looking toward the future. And so maybe what's ringing in his mind, I know for me it was ringing in my mind as I was reading this, is Psalm 90. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Maybe 80 years. 80 would be nice. We've had some folks here getting to the 90s, you know. That, that's great. But compare 80 or 90 years to the eternity that awaits in front of us. To the rest of eternity, that 80 or 90 years, at that point, will feel like for a little while. It was necessary. So then, like I said, why are we suffering? Why would God allow suffering? Well, I want you to know, first of all, for the Christian, you do not suffer because of your sin. And, and I can say that because Jesus suffered for our sin. That debt has been paid. Now, you may have to deal with the consequences of your sin, but God's not going to zap you with as that poor hunter, lung cancer and then COVID on top of it because of his sin. That, that's not the reason. If, if Hunter is, a, is a, one of God's people, Jesus has paid for that. Jesus has taken that burden of sin. 
So we don't suffer for our sin. And I say that because of 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus bore that for us. And yet, even knowing that, none of that makes suffering, those trials, that, that, that grievous nature of this, easier to bear. Why then, Lord? Why? And when you're suffering, it's fair to ask God, why? Read the book of Job. He never stops asking why. And God says at the end of the book of Job, he was righteous. He spoke about me well. So to question God is not a bad thing, as long as it's questioning in faith. So Peter offers us an answer. It's, it's probably not the, the total expansive answer of why God would allow us to suffer. But it is an answer, and it's a pretty good one. It's, it's pretty broad. So verse 7, he says, He allows this to happen so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why does God allow us to suffer? So that the tested genuineness of our faith may be known. Now, if you ever watch television programs where they've got a believer in it, and the believer is the bad guy, which increasingly they are, often what you'll hear the believer say is, oh, God was testing me. He was testing me to see if I would trust him. And so I went out and I did this thing. And what they're saying is, my conscience knows better than to kill this person, but I did it because I thought God was testing me. That's not what Peter means. That's not what he's getting at. Because who's the center of that equation in the television series? Me and my strength. Who's the bad guy? Who is, who is pushing me? God is. And so the testing of my faith is all about me and what I can do. What did Peter tell us last week? He is guarding us through faith. He's not testing us to go, do, do you really believe me? Will you really trust me? That's not what he means. What he means is that, te- that faith, and you get this from the context, it's more precious than gold that's tested. And when you test gold, what you do is you take gold and you heat it up and you melt it. And the imperfections rise to the top. And so now you know how pure that gold is. So when God tests us, what he's doing is he's purifying our faith. Because he's guarding us. It's his power that's guarding us through faith. He's purifying our faith. He's strengthening our faith. He's making it more pure, more precious than gold. That's why we suffer sometimes. It's because, not, because God doubts us or, or is not sure if we're going to stick around. It's he's saying, I want, I want your faith to be more pure. And so I'm leading you through this hardship. And so the idea there is then don't look to yourself and say, why am I suffering? What have I done? What are my good things? What are my bad things? How am I going to make it? When we're suffering, the idea is look toward God and away from self. He's testing you. He's, he's purifying that faith. He's working in you. He's leading you to a closer relationship with him. So that faith then is more precious that gold, than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. Gold is one of the most stable elements there are. It doesn't rust. It doesn't corrode. It doesn't fade. It is super stable. So is Peter just unaware of this fact? He, he doesn't understand metallurgy, and so he's, he's saying it's gold, gold uh, perishes? No, I think Peter knew exactly what he was doing. Gold endures. 
it lasts, it doesn't fade, it doesn't wear out, it doesn't corrode and, and turn into rust like um, iron will. But your faith is more than that. There will be a day when gold perishes, when, when the elements are consumed. Gold will be consumed, but your faith will be left standing. It's more precious than this gold, even though that gold is tested by fire. And where does that lead to? Where does this, this precious faith, this tested, this refined, this precious faith, where does it lead to? It leads to, it, it's, its result is, it says, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is what God is doing while he's refining and, and proving and testing your faith and, and making it more pure, is the end result is praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who gets the praise, who gets the glory, and who gets the honor? The commentaries are all over the place on this. The way it's stated, it just is, this is the result. So let me offer my take on this. I think we, at the end, will receive praise and glory and honor for standing firm, for enduring to the end, for making it. But don't forget why we make it. God is guarding you through faith. So when we get there and we make it, we, we receive this, this honor, well done, good and faithful servant. And then all we can do is turn that back to God and say, I'm only here because of him. And so the, the honor and the great praise and the glory reflect back to God again. But he does it through us, not apart from us. He says, look at what this person endured and look at why they endured it. And so we praise him and we bring him honor and glory. So I think the reason he left it nebulous is because it's kind of both. We're recognized by our master as being a good and faithful servant. And he's recognized as our savior who made any of that possible to begin with. So this is how he does this. This is how he brings himself. And then it says at the end, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that is when he returns, when he comes back. We'll talk more about that next week because we're going to look at the prophets and how they prophesied and these kind of things. But when Jesus returns, we'll see him as he is. When he returns, we'll be caught up into the air with him and, and changed in the twinkling of an eye. We will be brought into the fullness of our salvation. Our bodies will be redeemed. Our spirits will be redeemed. And so we will be found at that point to be, um, the, the result will be praise, glory, and honor in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So here's where faith comes into this. This is not about ball up your knuckles, stamp your foot, and go, I'm going to make it. And, and look to yourself for your own strength. Listen to what he says now in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So right now, for a little while, we're grieved by various trials. We know that Jesus has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God because Stephen the martyr, as he's dying, looks into heaven and says, I, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So the suffering that, that Stephen endured was so that we would have this, this sureness. Therefore, since he's at the right hand of God, we don't see him now. And what we said last week is faith is the best way to do this. 
It is the best way for us to be saved. It's best that we don't see him now. Because he is in heaven, behind the veil, in the holy of holies, securing our access to God. It's better that he be there where we can't see him than here right now. For a time, for a period. What he says, though, is he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though the people he's writing to have never laid eyes on Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar? We have never seen him, and yet we can articulate great and amazing truths about him. We can defend his deity and his humanity to the ends of the earth. No, though you do not see him, you love him. It doesn't start with you admire him, or you comprehend him, or you respect him. It starts with you love him. You do need to comprehend, admire, and respect him too, but it starts with this love for a person you have never seen. That's faith. That's trusting in something that you can't see, something beyond you. Now, Peter then goes on to say, though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Well, you can't love somebody you don't believe exists. That's not reality. But here is the faith. Though you do not see him, you believe in him. You say, I believe that Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God. Stephen saw him. Stephen's a pretty reliable witness, and so I'm taking his word for it, but there's more than that. I also just believe it in my heart. I feel the reality of Jesus interceding for me. I, I believe that he's doing these things. So we are called to have faith, a faith in things we can't see. So listen to this. This is Jesus after his ascension, he appears to the disciples, and Thomas says, I don't believe it. Unless I, unless I put my fingers in the holes in his hand and slide my hand into the, the wound in his side, I don't believe. He just couldn't believe that, that the Messiah would die. So in verse, uh, John 20, beginning in verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Then Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen? Wouldn't that be easier? Wouldn't that help you when when your faith is weak, when you're struggling, to be able to walk up and see Jesus and, and touch him and and look at the holes in his hands and his feet and his side. Wouldn't that be better? Jesus goes on, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. This faith of ours that is more precious than gold is blessed. It is better for us to see him this way, to believe in him this way. Now, it is possible Jesus could could appear right here in the middle of this service. I would love that. But we're called to believe what we can't see right now, to trust in something that that has been revealed to us. And he says that this, in the end, leads to its own outcome. What was the purpose of all this? Why the suffering? Why the improved faith? Why Jesus, who we can't see? What is the end of this? The outcome is the salvation of our souls, our salvation. That's where it's supposed to take us. That's where it's supposed to lead us to to the praise 
and the honor and the glory that we enjoy and reflect right back to God because we are elect, because he foreknew us, because he sanctified us, he's washed us in his own blood, his power has guarded us through faith, even though we're allowed to suffer necessary trials for a while. Glory comes. Glory that reflects back to him. Glory that shows who he is. The salvation of our souls shows who God is. Remember last week I said, why did God create the universe? Why bother? It was so that his great mercy had a theater to be displayed in. So the salvation of our souls is not primarily about us, though it's a great benefit, not complaining at all. It's ultimately designed to show God's glory, to show who he is, what kind of a God he is, how he is full of love. So he says that it is for the salvation of our souls. And I think I I need to get a little technical now. I wish I didn't have to do this here, but it it ends this way. What does he mean by souls? The word in in Greek is psyche. And so um, there's sometimes in Christianity we think of people as being three parts, body, soul, and spirit, three distinct elements. Um, I think the better picture is we are body and spirit, the two together. So then what's a soul? Um, If a soul is the non-material part of us, then what's a spirit? I find a hard time distinguishing between soul and spirit if that's what we mean by soul. The way the Bible uses the term soul, it's probably speaking of the body and the spirit together as a living being. Soul is kind of what they call a metonymy of, of the whole person. So when, when Peter says here that he, this will lead to the salvation of our soul, he doesn't mean the immaterial portion of us and the material portion is done away with and who cares. We're, we're not souls trapped in a body. We are body and soul together. We are body and spirit together. See, I'm using that interchangeably. That's kind of how it comes out. And part of that is because that's how the Bible uses it. For example, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds like three different things. But I think the soul is what unites the two. So that's what he's talking about. Why do I bring that up? Why get all technical at the end? Because we're looking forward to not just the salvation of our spirit, not just a new heart. We're looking forward to the resurrection. When body and soul, for those who have died in Christ, are put back together. For those who who are alive when he returns, we're changed in an instant. And we are totally saved, all of us. So that's what Peter is saying. The the trials that we go through, the, the difficulty sometimes in believing in something we can't see, we can't point at and say, there it is. All of this is leading to the salvation of our whole being, everything we are, everything who, all of who we are. So here's the picture. Again, go back to, to uh, Lake Victoria. Burton inspect labored through an African jungle. They suffered threats, starvation, illness, and they arrived at a beautiful lake. And what they got out of that was the fame of returning to England and saying, we found the source of the Nile. And that's it. That's all they got out of it. It doesn't benefit them now that they trekked through that jungle, found Lake Victoria, and receive fame and honor. They're dead. They're gone. We can, we can be amazed at their journeys, but it doesn't benefit them at this point at all. That's not what our trials will be like. That's not the jungle that we're trekking through in this life. We don't arrive at the end and go, well, that was it. 
it will result in praise and honor and glory eternally, echoing back to God over and over and over again. Our lives don't just not matter once we're, we're with Christ in the end. They just are not the most important thing to us at the moment. They're there to remind us, look at what God did. Look at how he preserved us through his power, by faith. He preserved us over and over and over again. I walked off the path this way and he brought me back. I was tempted in this way and he rescued me. I made it to the end. Yes, I did. I heard, well done, good and faithful servant. And when I look back, it's because my master had grabbed my hand and directed me through it all. That's much better than discovering the source of the Nile. I'll take it any day. So this is where Peter is trying to build for us this living hope. He, he said last time we're saved by faith. This time now he unpacks what faith looks like. What he's going to do next is he's going to say, this isn't a brand new invention that just we popped up with this week. This is not an invention of the New Testament church. He's going to look back and say, this is God's plan all along is your salvation. And, and can you rest your hope in that? Can you say, that's enough? God has demonstrated throughout history he's been working to save his people. Is that enough? Will that bring me hope? Will that bring me joy? That's where we're hoping we go. That's, that's where you, the end to which you pray. And so let's pray now for that. Lord Jesus, you existed forever as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You and your Father and the Spirit never separated, never at odds each, with each other, never not knowing who the other was, filled with ultimate delight, full of joy and glory and, and praise and worship at the beauty of who God is, one God in three persons. And yet, Lord Jesus, you decided that the best way to show the fullness of your glory was for you to add to yourself a human nature so that you could be broken, so that you could bleed, so that you could die. But most importantly, so that you could rise again. And so, Lord, as we can't see you now ascended in, into heaven at the right hand of your Father, Lord, would you fill us with a, a joy that is inexpressible? Lord, would you remind us that our salvation is full of honor and glory and root in us that hope? Lord, keep us safe when we wander. Keep us strong when we're weak. Show us who we are meant to be in Jesus Christ. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.